Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Please be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you who are visiting with us, visiting with us, and we'd like for you to take every opportunity that you have to be back with us. Let's go the other direction. If we're honest with ourselves, we will understand that this statement is true. Satan is effective in what he does. As a matter of fact, it is Satan who tempts man. We see that throughout the entirety of the book of Job, but especially in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. There, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would write this, God doesn't tempt man. God doesn't put those stumbling blocks there, that that is the job of Satan, and he uses our own devices and own lust to do those things. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he gives us the three ways that he always tempts man. Through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You and I can go back to Genesis chapter number 3. We can see her standing in the shade of that tree. We can see... In our mind's eye, wrapped around that branch, that serpent. And we can read the words he said. And in those words, we can read the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What Satan does is devalue the authority of God. And that really is his most effective tool. Uh, his tool, at least in some portion, goes this way. And there are several of these tools we could look at, but we'll only take opportunity to look at one today. Man simply needs to accept Jesus as his personal Savior by whatever means that would be, and trust that Jesus will save him. Go back to James. Chapter number 1, that book that was written by the inspiration of God in verse number 21, James would write, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. The Bible would say that the word is the tool by which God saves mankind, but the religious world says Jesus is. Now, which one is it? Could they both be right? Could one be right and one be wrong? Let me ask you a question. When man simply accepts Jesus as his personal Savior by whatever means, is God giving me the authority to decide how I will serve him? 
Let's take a few moments and look at this question. The question ultimately is, is one way as good as another, or is God's way the only way? We're going to look at Old Testament history, we're going to look at New Testament history, and we're going to look at some recent history and see if we can answer the question, is one way as good as another? Grab your Old Testaments. This will be uh, what we like to call a little bit of rapid fire. So um, here we go. Genesis chapter 4, we find a problem between two brothers. Matter of fact, those brothers are named Cain and Abel. Uh, the problem lies in the sacrifice that's being made. Abel continues to offer the sacrifice like they always have, with an animal, with blood, and with fat on that altar. It is found in verse number 3 of Genesis chapter 4 that in the process of time, Cain decided. Did you hear that? In the process of time, somewhere along the lines, Cain has decided that the best thing that he has is this fruit of the ground, whatever it was. I often like to look at Cain and give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that is the best that he has. Maybe that is the best offering of grain that has ever been offered to God from humanity. Still doesn't matter. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 4, God would tell us that Abel is still speaking to us today some 6,000 years later because one sacrifice is not as good as the other. As a matter of fact, that one sacrifice changed the face of Cain. It made Cain see his brother in an angry fashion, so much so that he killed him. Ask Abel if one sacrifice is as good as another. Can't be. It has to be the one God requires. Notice Genesis chapter 6. There we run into a man by the name of Noah. You probably have heard of him. God said to him and his family, uh, I'm going to destroy the world with water. If you want to live, build a boat. Not only build just a boat, build a boat to these specifications. One, I don't have a lot of building skills. And so when he says build that thing three stories high, I might would say, you know, if I just went three times as long, I wouldn't have to build up higher. Because I'm not, I am suspect of my first level building. I would be highly suspect of my second level building. And he said to him, I want you to build that out of gopher wood. Now, I have no idea what gopher wood is. I don't know what aisle they sell that on Lowe's or, or where to get it. But I think of Noah in the same place I am. What if he lives in hot springs? Can Noah build that ark out of pine? There are some shaking their head no. Now don't lose track right here, okay? Noah can build it out of pine, but it ain't going to float. He can build it out of whatever he wants to, but in order for that, that ark to save man as God said it would, it had to be built God's way. And so, one wood is not as good as another. What about one tower? 
Genesis chapter 11, as this Tower of Babel, uh, Babel is being built, uh, it is built for the express purpose to not be in the same predicament as the world found itself in Genesis chapter 6. They're going to build it higher than, than God can, can pour water. Go figure. You think if God wanted to flood the world today, he could flood the Empire State Building? Yeah. That tower's never going to be big enough. It was necessary that they follow after God's law rather than to build a tall building. That tower's never going to be tall enough. What about Leviticus chapter 10? Nadab and Abihu, verse 1, they have their clothes on just right. They have the proper things in their hands. They have the proper incense within those things. They have everything the way God says to have it with one small exception. It's just fire. Who cares what kind of fire is put underneath this incense to have it burn? Well, God does. In Leviticus chapter 16, we're told that they are to get this fire from the altar. Now, I don't know if they got that from a cooking fire, from a campfire, from a warming fire, from wherever. But I do know this. Because God says this is a strange fire and he burned them with it, I know where they didn't get it. See, in Leviticus chapter 10, in Genesis chapter 6, in Genesis chapter 4, all of these places, God uses an effective tool of parenting. That tool is called the law of exclusions. I remember when my daughters were young, and they would say, can we go play in the yard? And I would say, yes, go to the backyard. For me, there's a couple of reasons. One, that backyard is fenced in, which means I can control the heathens known as haze in my, in my uh, neighborhood. And two, I know exactly where y'all are if you get hurt and more than likely what you're going to get hurt on. So I can keep you wrangled in there. What if I look out the window and they're across the street standing on top of my post box, my mailbox. Is that going to fly? Well, see, if they were good members of the religious world, what they would say is, but you didn't say we couldn't stand on the mailbox. That's true, I did not explicitly say, you cannot stand on the mailbox. The law of exclusions would say, when I said you can go to the backyard, I excluded every other geographical point on this earth other than the backyard. I didn't have to say, don't go stand on the mailbox. I didn't have to say, don't go over to this neighbor's house or that neighbor's house. Why? Because I put the parameters on where I want you to be. God is just that way. 2 Samuel chapter 6, is one ox cart as good as another? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. And they are going from uh, lordship city to lordship city, toting this sacred box on the back of an ox cart, and God doesn't say one word to them. Yet when Israel does it, and one guy makes sure the box doesn't fall off, he dies. What's the problem? Isn't God fair? Yes, God is fair. God gave specific instructions to the nation of Israel on how they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant and not to the Philistines. 
It's not a sacred box to them. It's not something special to them. It's a spoil of war to them. What about 2 Kings chapter 5? When we run into Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, the first verse we read about him is he is a good guy. He, he takes care of folks around him who are in need. He always is helping out someone. And there's just one problem here. He's a leper. We don't want to mention that he's a leper out loud because then all we think about is he's a leper. The fact of the matter is this. Naaman is eaten up with leprosy. And he's told by one of his servants of his wife that if, if he would go to her old hometown in Jerusalem, that there's a guy there who can cure him. Sounds very tempting, doesn't it? He goes. And he finds himself on the front porch of Elisha's house. He knocks on the door and that servant comes out and says, hey, go dip seven times in the Jordan River and shuts the door. And Naaman is there left with his thoughts. And I imagine his thoughts went like this. What just happened? I didn't even see the, the, I didn't see the prophet. He didn't make a big spectacle. I, 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 seven times in the Jordan River. The Jordan? Have you seen that nasty thing? I got rivers back home that are much cleaner. Can't he just go back home? Yes, he can. He can go back home and dip seven times, and he'll still have leprosy. Matter of fact, he can go to the Jordan River and dip six times and still have leprosy. It wasn't until dip number seven to where he came up and his body had the skin of a baby. Let me give you something to chew on this week, and you let me know about it. What happens if Naaman dips an eighth time? Is one queen as good as another? Look about Vashti and Esther. Chapter 1 of the book of Esther, uh, Vashti is commissioned by Xerxes to dance in a very provocative and uh, scantily clad, if clad at all, manner in front of his friends. To sort of show off all the things that he has. She doesn't do it. Xerxes takes opportunity to change queens at that point in time, in which, unknowingly, he helps the nation of Israel survive. Would Vashti have done that? Did she even know? And here we find him in the very middle of the Bible. Twice is mentioned in the book of Job, the first two chapters, God speaking to Satan as Satan is looking for someone to just sort of tear apart. Have you considered my servant Job? What a book for us to read and to study and to be thankful that God never asked this question, have you considered my servant, Billy? I don't know I'll make it through. Job has his questions about himself, but I don't think i make it through that. And yet, years removed, millennia removed, you and I look back at Job and gain strength 
from that. We look at Joel as Joel 2 is mentioning the day of Pentecost when the church doors will be open. And he keeps, keeps mentioning that day and the one day that's happening. Isn't one day just as good as another? Isn't one Sunday just as good as another? Oh no. Oh no. What about Malachi? In Malachi chapter 1 verses 8 through 10, there are some gifts that are given to God, or supposed to be to God, and uh, they're supposed to be for sacrifice. And these Israelites are bringing up here animals that are missing an eye and that have a bad limp because of a broken leg and are cut up and, and are mangled because they can't take those animals and sell them for a profit. As a matter of fact, Malachi will say this, take those sorry excuses of animals and give them to your governor and see will he be pleased. And you expect to come before the very throne of God and give him this? The Old Testament history would tell me that one is not as good as another, that it has to be God's way, cannot be my way. Look at the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, was on this wise. It happened in this fashion that Mary, uh, who was a spouse to Joseph at the time, uh, was pregnant with the child of God, had him in a little town called the house of bread, Bethlehem, underneath the seat of his father, David, that is uh, the place where David comes from. You know, there are 300 plus prophecies of Jesus the Christ and how he was supposed to live and act and teach while he was on this earth. This is the only prophecy about where he was supposed to be born. Many people would look at Jesus and say that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time and, and he was just had these uh, miraculous things ascribed to him. All right, let's walk down that road for a minute. Let's suppose he did. Let's suppose everything he did was just right place at the right time. How'd that baby in the womb get his mama to go to Bethlehem? Go ahead, I'll wait. Oh, yeah. When you and I began to look at the life and the birth of Jesus the Christ, that birth had to happen at that place at that time for Jesus to be considered the Son of God. If prophecy number one doesn't happen, it doesn't matter if two through 300 does. One of them didn't. In Luke chapter 3 through Luke chapter 22, we see the life of Jesus the Christ. We see a man full of compassion. We see one who is trying to teach the religious elite how to follow God since they have obviously forgotten. We see a man who is comforting to those who are in need and in trial and who find themselves burdened with life. What if he never did any of those things? What if he never taught one word? What if he never performed one miracle? What if he lived a life just like mine? Would one life be as good as another? I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> Comparing my life to Jesus' life, I fail every time. One birth is not as good as another. One life is not as good as another. John 18 through 20. One death is not as good as another. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, at one point Pilate says, why don't y'all just take him outside and stone him? 
And underneath Jewish law, legally, they would have had the right to stone him. They could have gotten rid of the body before Passover, and no one would have been unclean. Why didn't they take him out and stone him? Well, in the, in the humanistic side of this, they wanted him to suffer. In the spiritual side of this, God has a plan which does not involve Jesus being stoned to death. It involves him hanging on a tree. So one death is not as good as another. What about John chapter 9, the pool of Siloam? Jesus there meets a man who's blind. He bends down, spits on the ground, makes a, a, a muddy, goopy paste, puts that on his eyes, tells this blind man to go to the pool of Siloam, wash his eyes. What if he made a mistake? Went to a different pool. After all, he is blind. That could happen. He would still be blind. Because it's not where Jesus said to go. But he did go to the pool of Siloam. He did wash his eyes out. We look at that idea and we say, boy, if I could just go over there, that'd fix my eyes too. I'll tell you what, we'll go over there. I'll spit on the ground. I'll make that muddy clay mixture. I'll put it on your eyes. You can go over there and you'll have the same type of vision you had. Mostly, except maybe some more dirt in there. Than when we left here on the plane. Because it's not only the pool of Siloam. It's not only the, the spittle that was on the ground. It's not only the instructions. It's the source from that. I don't have the right to do any of those things, but Jesus did. What about the words in John 11? Jesus finds himself in John 11 at the very tomb of his friend Lazarus. He's already been berated, and I hate to say the word berated. He's already been uh, questioned on the way in uh, by saying this, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Just a side note here. Jesus did not need to be in the same vicinity as uh, Lazarus to keep him from dying. <laughs> Jesus, nothing geographically needed to, for Jesus to be right there beside him. He could have stayed right where he was and said, Lazarus is going to be okay. And at that point in time, <coughs> excuse me, Lazarus would have turned the corner and Lazarus would have been fine. We find him there standing before uh, this tomb. And, and he says these words about verse 38 after he wipes his eyes from crying. Lazarus, come forth. Now, Brother Marshall, Marshall Keeble I used to say this way back when, and I, I think he's dead on. It was necessary for Jesus to qualify who would come out of the tomb. If he were just to stand there and say, come forth, every tomb on earth would open. It was necessary that he qualified it with Lazarus so he didn't wake all of the dead. You know, my grandfather Hayes died back in the late 90s. I'd like to talk to him. Why don't we just go down to Alabama and we'll tell him to stand up? You think that'll work? I'd like for it to. It doesn't mean it will. 
Look at Romans chapter 6. The Romans had a had an issue with grace and sin. They began Romans chapter 6 by saying this, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, the grace that was given to them got them out of sin, and they figured if they wanted more grace, they should do more sin, and they just poured it, sort of be piled on them like buckets. Ah, incorrect. Matter of fact, it would be Paul who writes by the inspiration of God, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How, how are we going to live in sin when we're already dead to it? Doesn't the Christian life mean anything? Can I just live like the world? Will God save me just because I, I've done what He said in some point in time in my life? What about mindset? Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. Let this mindset be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What if I just keep my old mindset? I let Jesus have his mindset. I'll just keep my mindset. And we're two different people, so we should be okay, right? Wrong. What about Acts chapter 2? It takes us back to Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 that Michael read so nobly for us just a moment ago. Where Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Notice its tense, or its uh, uh, numerical nature. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Those are all the same thing, and those are all singular. How many churches are there today? One. Same one that's been open since the, uh, the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the death of Jesus the Christ. That same one that has been existence throughout time is the one Jesus gave his blood for. It's the plan of God to save mankind, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. It is the church. Isn't one as good as another? Hmm. Are you scared to say no on that? Here's the reason why. All of the rest of uh, the instances God has proven himself over and over and over to say one is not as good as another and it is my way or no way, how do you respond to how many churches are there? I got, got a little quick on the draw right there. Well, Hebrews chapter 2. The Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 2 writes about a, a salvation that, that can, can slip away from us because we're not paying attention to it. Well, how many salvations are there? One. That's given to us in, Hebrew, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, in that list of seven ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. By the way, just a side note for you on that salvation and those seven ones. The condition in which those seven ones are written in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, would, would explain itself this way. If any one of these seven are true, then every one of these seven are true. You believe there's one God? You can shake your head, it's all right. Then you believe that there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord. You believe it all. 
Let's look at our recent history. Can man be saved simply by accepting Jesus? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I am going to ask you to sit back in your seat because this might get scary. The answer is yes. But how? Don't, don't leave me here. Don't leave and say, well, the preacher said I just said, listen, man can be saved by accepting Jesus, but we need to know how that is. One, it's not by feelings. It's not by waking up in the middle of the night with, a, with an odd feeling in your, in your belly. That's tacos too late. It's not even by simply an acknowledgement that Jesus was, maybe is, or could have been somewhere in history, and that he was probably a good guy and that he was a teacher of God's Word. It's not even an acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. What are you going to do with an acknowledgement? That would be very much like saying, I acknowledge the speed limit on uh, Airport Road is, I don't even know what this, I'm guess. let me guess a safe number, 40, is that close? 35, 35, okay, that's, <laughs> wow, let's say that that number is 35, I acknowledge that, but I'm going to go 75, or just because I acknowledge those signs are there doesn't mean I've done anything. It's, it's not by uh, reciting some sort of sinner's prayer. Matter of fact, you've got some homework this week. Take your Bible and locate for me the sinner's prayer. There is a crisp $1 bill for anyone who can do that. I've been associated with God's Word for a long time. I've read it, studied it, looked at it, broke it down for a long time. It's not in there. It just doesn't exist. It's not by saying, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I follow the rules mostly, you know, I... I'm morally, I'm a good guy, so that's where it counts. None of those things will save man. So accepting Jesus and his authority means this. From the Bible, it means understanding God's law. First hearing it, Romans 10, 17, and then believing it. Hebrews 11 and 6, most definitely believing it up to a point to where I understand God will punish those who are wicked and God will reward those who are righteous because that's who He is and that's what He does. And when I understand God's law in that fashion and I believe it with everything that I have, it is then time for me to repent. Luke 13 verses 3 and 5 where Jesus would say, I tell you nay, but except you repent. You see that? You, except you and, and me. Except we do those things individually. Except I individually submit myself to the authority of God. I find myself continuing to know who God is, but just 
Live how I always have. We see the Bible commands confession next. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33 Jesus will say this, if you will confess me before men, I'll confess you before God. Verse 33, he goes on to say, but if you don't, I'm not going to stand up for you. Find Acts chapter 8 and verse number 38. To accept Jesus and his authority means I must accept the action of baptism. And it's an action of faith. You mean covering somebody up with water doesn't get them clean? Not even on the outside. As a matter of fact, baptism is a work of God, by the way, not a work of you. You'll see in Acts chapter 8, verse number 37, where uh, the Ethiopian unit makes that good confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look at verse number 38. And then they stop the chariot, and they both, the eunuch and... Um, uh, Philip, get out. And they both go into the water, and he baptizes the eunuch. Couldn't he just sprinkle some water on his head there while he was sitting, sitting in, the, uh, in the chariot? Yeah. Well, how do you know there was water there, preacher? Because he lives in the desert, and he is still alive. To accept Jesus means I accept his authority and I submit myself to that no matter what he says. Is one as good as another? No, it is not. It is only by the blood of Jesus the Christ offered on that hill that redeems man back to God. Mankind will never be acceptable unto God unless he submits to the will of God. Here's the reason why. Every sin that has been committed from the garden up until today has been committed against the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God. It is all an affront to God. And in order to be in good standings with God, I'm going to have to do what he says. Not what I think that he says. Not even what I hope that he says. Or even what I may have been taught by others that he says. It's necessary for me to open his word. See what he says to do and do those things. For you who are here who may not have done those things yet, what are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. You have an opportunity now to come to God in confession of Jesus the Christ and be added to His family. You have that opportunity here in just a moment. I'm going to urge you to take advantage of that. And for you who have put on Christ in baptism, and you look at your life and you say, well... I could be doing better, I should be doing better, I ought to be. Well, let me urge you just as I would somebody in my own blood family. Are you ready? So do it. Don't wait any longer. Don't push those things off. Don't, don't uh, push into the future something that you don't even know if you have a future. Come back home to the God that loves you, to the family that misses you. And do those things right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement.